today we finish Romans. <laughs> Thanks, Tristan. Appreciate it. Um, we began in September when the sun was shining and uh, we just were still, some of us slightly tanned from holiday and uh, we finish uh, just as Christmas is round the corner. We've got beards now, yeah. We started clean shaven and we end with beards. We're going to read from Romans chapter 15, verse 14. Otherwise, this could just go on all morning and we'll really not get anything done. So if you can turn to Romans chapter 15, and we're going to read from verse 14. Uh, through to the end. Paul writes, I myself am convinced, my brothers and sisters, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with knowledge and competent to instruct one another. Yeah, I've written to you quite boldly on some points to remind you of them again because of the grace God gave me to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles. He gave me the priestly duty of proclaiming the gospel of God so that the Gentiles might become an offering acceptable to God, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Therefore, I glory in Christ Jesus in my service to God. I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me in leading the Gentiles to obey God by what I've said and done by the power of signs and wonders, through the power of the Spirit of God. So from Jerusalem all the way round to Illyricum. Well done, Neil. I have fully proclaimed the gospel of Christ. It's always been my ambition to preach the gospel where Christ was not known, so that I would not be building on someone else's foundation. Rather, as is written, those who are not told about him will see, and those who've not heard will understand. This is why I've often been hindered from coming to you. But now there's no more place for me to work in these regions. And since I've been longing for many years to visit you, I plan to do so when I go to Spain. I hope to see you. Um, I hope to see you while passing through and that you will assist me on my journey there after I've enjoyed your company for a while. Now, however, I'm on my way to Jerusalem in the service of the Lord's people there. For Macedonia and Achaia were pleased to make a contribution for the poor among the Lord's people in Jerusalem. They were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have shared in the Jews' spiritual blessings, they owe it to the Jews to share with them their material blessing. So after I've completed this task and made sure that they've received this fruit, I'll go to Spain and I'll visit you on the way. I know that when I come to you, I'll come in the full measure of the blessing of Christ. I urge you, brothers and sisters, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit, to join me in my struggle by praying to God for me. Pray that I may be kept safe from the unbelievers in Judea and that the contribution I take to Jerusalem may be favorably received by the Lord's people there, so that by God's will I may come to you with joy and together with you be refreshed. The God of peace be with you all. Amen. Now this next chapter is the chapter you dread being assigned to read, but we're going to give it a go. With all of this stuff, if you're ever asked to read a passage from the Bible that's got long words or names in it, just do it confidently 
As I've said before, people will go, so that's how you say it. I never knew. <laughs> this, is, this is the actual way you say all of these names. I don't care what you've heard in the past or even if you're a native Greek speaker, this is actually how you do it. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a deacon of the church in Kenkrai. I ask you to receive her in the Lord in a way worthy of his people and to give her any help she may need from you. For she's been a benefactor of many people, including me. Greet Priscilla and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus. They risked their lives for me. Not only I, but all the church of the Gentiles are grateful to them. Greet also the church that meets at their house. Greet my dear friends Epinetus, who was the first convert to Christ in the province of Asia. Greet Mary, who worked very hard for you. Greet Andronicus and Junia, my fellow Jews who've been in prison with me. They're outstanding among the apostles, and they were in Christ before I was. Greet Ampliatus, my dear friend in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ, and my dear friend Stachys. Greet Apelles, whose fidelity to Christ has stood the test. Greet those who belong to the household of Aristobulus. Greet Herodian, my fellow Jew. Greet those in the household of Narcissus who are in the Lord. Greet Tryphena and Tryphoso, those women who work hard in the Lord. Greet my dear friend Persis, another woman who's worked very hard in the Lord. Greet Rufus, chosen the Lord, and his mother, who's been a mother to me too. Greet Asyncritus, Phlegon, Hermes, Patrobas, Hermas, and the other brothers and sisters with them. Greet Philologus, Julia, Neroas, and his sister, and Olympas, and all the Lord's people who are with them. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ send greetings. I urge you, brothers and sisters, to watch out for those who cause division and, obst and put obstacles in your way that are contrary to the teaching you've learned. Keep away from them. For such people are not serving our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. By smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the minds of naive people. Everyone's heard about your obedience, so I rejoice because of you. But I want you to be wise about what's good and innocent about what's evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. Timothy, my co-worker, sends his greetings to you, as do Lucius, Jason, and Sosipater, my fellow Jews. And I love this next verse. I, Tertius, who wrote down this letter, greet you in the Lord. It's almost like Paul's been dictating the whole of this letter. And suddenly, and, and I, can, I, I don't know if this is true, I can imagine uh, Paul going, who else do I need to thank? And Church has got it's me. <laughs> and Paul thinks of others. Gaius, whose hospitality I and the whole church here enjoy, sends you his greetings. Er Erastus, who's the city's director of public works, and our brother Quartus send you their greetings. Now, to him who's able to establish you in accordance with my gospel, the message I proclaim about Jesus Christ, in keeping with the revelation of the mystery hidden for long ages past, but now revealed and made known through the prophetic witness, writings by the command of the eternal God, so that all the Gentiles might come to faith and obedience. To the only wise God be glory forever through Jesus Christ. Amen. <laughs> to be honest, there was, I just, the other thing is, say them quick. Um, Want to just talk really simply try and reflect on what Paul has written in these two, that final chapter and a half. Paul's really talking about two things. It's plans and people. It's obvious. It's just the two things that he's talking about. For Paul, the two things that matter were plans and people. If you look at chapter 15, verse 15, and on, on there... 
Paul recognised that when he first met Jesus on that Damascus road, or when Jesus first met him, much better. Not only did God get hold of him and to reassure him of his salvation, but God got hold of him in order to say, I've got a particular work I want for you. In verse 15, I've written to you quite boldly on some points to remind you of them again, because of the grace God gave me to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles. He gave me the priestly duty of proclaiming the gospel of God so the Gentiles might become an offering acceptable to God, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Paul recognised the moment he was converted was the moment God said to him, I've got something for you that is, you have to do. When you and I surrendered our lives to Jesus, to use the old-fashioned phrase, when we were saved, you were not, you did not become a Christian in order that you might simply go to heaven. When God got hold of you, he said, I want to use you for my mission. When Paul met Jesus on the Damascus Road, he was under no, absolutely no illusion that he hadn't met Jesus in order that this very well-living, good-living, well-meaning Jew who's now a follower of Jesus could one day go to heaven. God got hold of him that he might be wrapped up into God's mission. And it's not just for people like apostles, it's for all of us. What happened to Paul is what happens to each of us. God says, right, you surrendered, I now want to use you. And actually my question and, and to this morning is really simple. One of my questions is this, who's keeping you accountable to that? When we talk about accountability, often what we think about, and this is absolutely appropriate, what we think about often is who's keeping accountable as accountable so we don't do the wrong thing. If we struggle with drink, if we struggle with uh, porn, if we struggle with bad behaviour, if we struggle with anger, we may well have people around us who go, I'll help you, I'll get alongside you, I'll keep you accountable. And in a sense, that keeps them accountable so we don't do some stuff. But what actually all of us need are people who keep us accountable for what we should be doing. It's not somehow just someone who keeps accountable so we don't fall off into immorality or doing the wrong thing, that somehow the purpose of being a Christian is, can we walk this very narrow line of holiness? Holiness matters. But actually, who's keeping you accountable to the thing that God asked you when you were saved? And I suspect that many of us in the room would recognize that the older we get, the easier it is to lose why we got saved in the first place. We forget what we were saved from, and we forget what we were saved for. We just identify ourselves as Christians. But when God got hold of you, God said, I've got something for you. What does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus? Well, the thumbnail definition I'm using in lots of different places at the moment is this. A disciple is someone who is simply learning to be obedient to Jesus and the way of Jesus 
in the place they find themselves in at this moment. A disciple is someone who is learning to be obedient to the way of Jesus in the place they're in at this very moment. And the question is, what's Jesus doing? What's Jesus asking of you? And it goes back to some of the really simple disciplines of praying, of being spiritually alive and spiritually alert. You know, why do you pray in the morning? Well, some days we pray in order that our day will go well. But that's kind of not really the main reason we should be praying in the morning. Because the difference between those who follow Jesus and those who decide they can do it on their own is not that you've got turbo boost to help you with the problems you face. But we all do it. But the reason you pray in the morning is, oh God, let me spot what you're up to today. Because you want me to join in, you want me to be part of this, and I'm going to have to learn to be obedient to you here, in my place, in my place of work, in my family, in my neighbourhood. God, can you help me learn to be obedient to you today? At this moment, at this time. When God got hold of you, he asked of you, I want to use you in the way that I can only use you. For Paul, he was, sim- he was shaped by his context, by his background, by his history, by his environment, as you are. God used Paul in particular ways, but he wants to use you in ways that only you can be used. For Paul, it was that he would preach to the Gentiles. And uh, when we talk about Gentiles, actually, it's, it, it feels like a strange phrase. But of course, in Paul's mind, there were only two groups of people. There were the Jews, and there was the Gentiles. And the Gentiles is everybody who's not a Jew. <laughs> so, do you know what I mean? And, and it's like, when Paul gets, meets Jesus, he goes, God has asked me to preach to everybody who's not one of mine. And there's a lot of those. There's only a handful of Jews, relatively. But Paul says, I want to go to the rest of the world, wherever that may be. And Paul was a pioneer. He was always pushing on. He was always breaking new ground. Paul, for whatever reason, he may have been married in the past and his wife may have died or something may have happened. But Paul's single, when we know the Paul of the New Testament, he may never have married. It's probably likely he did. It would have been very unusual for Paul not to have married. But Paul's single. And Paul in his singleness says, I can do stuff that other people who are married can't do. I suspect Paul wasn't mowing his lawn and hoovering his carpets every weekend. Do you know what I mean? I don't think Paul was thinking, I need to get to Ikea, we need, uh, we need new candles. I reckon wherever Paul laid his hat, to <laughs> some of you will now sing, wherever Paul laid his hat, that was indeed his home. For Paul, every new place was an opportunity to reach people. And if you look at verse 18, he he says, and and his big deal is, I don't want to keep going back to where people have already been. I'll not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me in leading the Gentiles to obey God by what I've said, by the power of signs and wonders, through the power of the Spirit of God. So from Jerusalem all the way round to Illyricum, 
I fully proclaim the gospel of Christ. Now, Illyricum is what we would call Albania, Croatia, Serbia. It's that coast. There's, so you've got, you've got the boot of Italy, and then if you take a ferry across, you've got the coast of what we would call Croatia. And he said, I've come from Jerusalem, and I've made my way through what we would call Turkey. And I've gone through Turkey, Corinth, uh, to, to Galatia and Ephesus and, and Antioch and all those sort of places. And, and I've gone all up the coast. And Paul says, and the place I want to go next, I want to come to you in Rome. And then he slips in in verse 24. <laughs> I plan to do so. I'll come and visit you when I go to Spain. Now, sometimes when you're reading the Bible, I, I, it may not be for you, but sometimes you're reading it and you think, Spain, oh, I know where Spain is. Everywhere else, I have no idea where it is. But oh, Spain, I've, yeah, I've been to Spain, Paul. Um, and, and, for, and Spain, for Paul and for the Romans, was the furthest reach of the known world. That was the point. So what's Paul's big aim? I'm going to go to the end of the earth. Literally. Spain. And I'll pop in on you on the way past. And as I go, I go in the power of the Spirit. And I'll see signs and I'll see wonders. Things that point to the kingdom of God. And I'll serve God's purpose when I go to the end of the earth. And Paul never got there. He never got there. Paul's life was full of plans and preventions and frustration because his plans often didn't work out. If you look, at, you don't need to look, but let me tell you what it says right at the beginning of the, this, this letter to the Romans. He says in uh, verse uh, 10, uh, verse 13, I don't want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters. I planned many times to come to you, but I've been prevented from doing so until now. It's kind of like Paul, you know, how many times did Paul sat down with his team of workers and going, I'm going to go, next, this coming year, I'm definitely going to go to Rome. Because if we can get to Rome, we're in the heart of the empire. That's the best place for us. Let's go next year. And year after year, he was prevented. But his big dream was Spain, and he never got there. Why does God give you dreams that never come, seem to come true? Why does God place in your heart things that are the big thing, and actually, after a few years, you look back and go, I was prevented. Things got in the way. It's not that Paul kept saying, actually, I think the devil's preventing me. It's just, I was prevented. And sometimes he will see that very much as God preventing him. Why does God give you dreams that never seem to come true? Well, there's a, a man who is um, called Tom Wright, who's written, um, he's written more books than any of us can possibly read. He writes quicker than we can read which is very frustrating for many of us. But in one of his books on Romans, he says this, something like this. He says, maybe, maybe the reason God gives you these big dreams are because 
What you don't know is that the first step you take is actually the most important step that you will ever take. And if you didn't have the big dream, you'd never make the first step. And it's the first step that will last. And he makes a simple point, and I think he's onto something. He makes a simple point. The thing that Paul really did for God and for the church was a letter to Romans. If he'd have just got to Rome as quick as he'd wanted and then got to Spain as quick as he'd wanted and never had to write the letter that explained the whole gospel through his eyes and to and understand what God was doing, what would we have lost? Well, I'm sure God could have done it other ways, but things like Martin Luther, a 16th century monk, feeling hemmed in by the Catholic Church at that time, that had said that if you just do enough good stuff, God will act on you. But the truth is, you'll never do enough good stuff, so you'll always have to keep coming back to the church and always feeling guilty. And But if you pay more, then maybe God will hear you. If you say more, maybe God will hear you. If you do more, maybe God will hear you. But truth is, you and I both know you'll never do enough. And the church had got itself into a, a bit of a, a cul-de-sac. And Martin Luther, a 16th century German monk, read... Paul's letter and said, do you know what? I think the church is wrong. I think the church is wrong. I think that we're accepted by God through Jesus without us doing anything. I think that actually it's being justified by faith. I think that's what it's about. Not can you give enough money, not enough can you say enough masses, not can you say enough prayers, not can you turn up to a church enough, not can you do what the priest tells you. I think God's done something in Jesus. And the whole of the Christian story changed because one unknown German monk said, I think I can see it all differently because of what Paul wrote. Now, you and I, we're not Paul. And you and I, our dreams are not as big as Paul's. And you and I will never write the epistle to the Romans because they don't want it now, they've got one. You and I will never write anything that anybody will read three years after we're dead. Ten years after we're dead, it will be doing well if people can vaguely, oh yeah, wasn't he around somewhere, I seem to remember him. But you and I both have those big hopes. You and I both have those big dreams, and it's not just you and I being stupid and overbearing and overreaching ourselves, sometimes they come from God. Not always, but sometimes they come from God. And how do you deal when you've been prevented from the very things that you hope for? Maybe the first step you took, whatever that first step was, was actually the most important thing you did. The plans, the plans that get frustrated, the plans that get prevented. You know, if you read Christian books sometimes, particularly Christian uh, books that talk about the stories of people's lives, because it's sort of always condensed to about 200 pages, a fairly big type, that sort of take 80 years and condense it down. It makes it feel like everybody, else, other's life, everybody else's life is really clear. I reckon Paul's life was just as muddled as ours is. 
the hope, the ambition, the prevention. And yet God's there working it out. But the final thing in this letter, and the way he ends it, is with all these names. And for Paul, the people mattered. There are 25 names listed here. 24 plus Rufus's mother, who has been a mother to Paul, but bless her, didn't get a name mentioned. She would have been irritating, I would have thought. It's interesting that Paul is writing to a city he's never been to, but he actually knows quite a lot of people there. There probably weren't that many Christians there, but he knows quite a few of them. And I suspect that's for a number of reasons. Firstly, that actually the networks were in place. And actually uh, there was a lot of movement around and people would remember people and they would know people. But names matter. And the second thing, I don't know if you realize and recognize, and if you not read closely, you won't, is how many of these names are women's names. The early church in, in the Bible was formed largely by women. Clearly men were there, but largely the church was formed by women. Women were often the first to come to faith. And it's intriguing because then what happens is you have households that convert. And that must have been really um, countercultural. Because in most regular Roman households, the man of the house, whatever he said we should worship, everybody would worship. This is why when in Peter, Paul says to, to wives there, um, you know, there's a possibility by you being in the household that you can pray and you can act in certain ways and actually the household religion will change. These women were really quite subversive in their own households. They could see things could be different. And then these households, you've got the households of Priscilla and Aquila, you've got Aristobulus in verse 10, you've got Narcissus in verse 11, you've got Asyncritus in verse 14, and you've got Philologus in verse 15. And those five households were mentioned. And in three of those, it explicitly talks about the church that meets in the household. And the other two, it's assumed that those households would have been house churches. Most of those early churches in Rome wouldn't have had more than 20 people in them. And Paul writes to five of the households in Rome. Paul's out pushing back the borders and the boundaries of the world. Who's going to reach Rome? It's people who've got houses and live there and are committed to the long term and are able to stay for the long term. Those are the people who are going to reach Rome. And it's still the same. It's people who stay in the ordinary. The reason we find some of those names so difficult to read is two, at least two things. Firstly, is they're clearly Roman names. They're not our sort of names. That's obvious. The second reason we find them very difficult to read is because you've not read them before in the New Testament. You've, do you know what I mean? Narcissus you know if you know the old myths or you know the Genesis early music. Um, 
Aristobulus. That's actually no more complicated a name than Barnabas. But you've read about Barnabas, and Barnabas seems a little bit more familiar to you. But that, with a longer name, you've just never heard of before. Because the truth is, it doesn't pop up in any other part of the New Testament. Unknown. And Rufus's mother, she didn't even get a name check. People in Rome reach Rome. Unnamed people, ordinary people, people that are not seen as powerful, people who are able to use what they have, their small groups in their homes, where actually they become cells of people who bear witness to Christ. These are the people that reached Rome. And Paul honours them. He's, he's written the most theologically dense book in the New Testament. And it's 16 chapters long. And one of those chapters is simply a list of names. A list of names to say thank you. A list of names to say these people matter. A list of names that says you may never have heard of them and you will never hear of them again, but they matter. Because these people have been included in the mission of God where they are. That was the very small hook on why I wanted you to wear your name badge. It was really interesting listening because um, I, I had the easy part of uh, the name badge uh, activity. Brian had the difficult bit. I simply had to say, have you got a badge? Brian took it upon himself to spell out everybody's names. And it was really listen interesting listening to you. Who knew that Faye doesn't have a knee? But Anne does, and Anne actually feels unclothed without a knee. That's, that's her phrase. Matters. Who knew that Gemma is a J, not a G? And that matters. Who knew that Tristan is not with an M, and it's certainly not with an I? It, we had three or four attempts on Tristan. <laughs> Names matter. Your name matters. It was interesting watching you as you came in. Lots of you going, actually, if you're going to get my name, spell it right. It's a small thing, but it actually it matters to me. Because your name does matter. Because it's not enough for us to say, ah, we, we kind of get you, it's all right, it's close enough. It really matters. It matters to Paul and it matters to God. It matters to us, and it should matter to us, that actually your name is known. not enough for us to go, yeah, it's the tall bloke, um, works in the prison, tall bloke, big guy, married to, um, is it Susie? I, oh, it's, it's Rob. It's not enough just to be vague. We need to know him because he's known by God and he's wrapped up into God's purpose, as is Val, as is Pauline, as I am. Your name is an indicator this morning that you've been wrapped up into the purpose of God.